Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. This is a weekly in-person class taught at Columbus Baptist Church. This course is a verse-by-verse deep dive into the scriptures. We encourage you to listen to these recordings and follow along with your Bible open. With that being said, let's get into this week's class. Biblical Literacy 101. My name is Matthew Swart, and today I am going to be teaching out of Psalms 14 and Psalm 15. I'm very grateful for everyone who is here today, as well as all who may be listening after the fact. Thank you for taking the time. I'm excited to get into it. So let's start off with a prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to teach tonight that you've gathered all of us here tonight, as well as anyone who may be listening, Lord. May you bless this time. May you guide me as I teach, and may your scripture pour forth and convict and encourage in all the ways that you mean it to, Father. May it truly cut to the heart in all the ways that you intend, Father. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. All right, so we are going to start off here in Psalm 14. Uh, The title here in the ESV is The Fool Says There Is No God. And the intro, as we have seen before, is to the choir master of David. So as we've discussed, choir master here could be um, two significant interpretations here, is that it is either the leader of a group of people who will be singing the psalm, kind of David's worship director of sorts, or the choir master is God himself. Now, of David, for those not familiar with the psalms, this is written by King David, who was the king of the nation of Israel, um, particularly godly man. And if you'd like to learn more about him, you can read all about his story in 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, A little bit of context too. This really isn't relevant for um, either of the Psalms tonight, but just for anyone who's been listening or will be listening later on, much of these Psalms in the beginning are written in the context of a succession struggle of sort between King David and his predecessor before him, King Saul, who was the first king of Israel. Um, Long story short, Saul was basically doing a really bad job as king. God took away his position He anointed David instead, and they went back and forth for quite a while until Saul died, and eventually David became king. So, like I said, if you'd like to learn more, you can read all about that in 1 and 2 Samuel. But as for tonight, that's not exactly relevant. So going into that, on that note, the historical context here, um, I'm going to open with a quote from the English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who said on this psalm, quote, The many conjectures as to the occasion upon which it was written are so completely without foundation that it would be a waste of time to mention them at length. So, in light of that, I am not going to mention them at length. There is really nothing important historically to say here, so we're going to leave it at that. Um, I guess the only thing I would say, this really is in context, but the psalm is clearly, as we will see, it's not a happy psalm. So, you know, oftentimes the psalms will preface with an instrument they're meant to be going with or a tune that gives a little bit of context into the mood of the song. 
Um, we don't have any of that here, but it is clearly a lament. So when we go through it, you should think of it in that type of tone. <gasps> Thank you. All right. So let's start off in verse one. I will read the whole verse. Um, and I'll also say this psalm is relatively short. Um, I'm not going to read through the whole thing, because I think it's better if we just take it piece by piece. So we will start off in verse 1, and I will read the verse, which reads in the English Standard Version, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So let's start off. I want to consider this word fool here. So I would like to ask anyone listening, as well as my friends here tonight, to think for a minute about what comes to mind when you think of the word fool. Someone with no mind. Okay. Yeah, Jade. Someone with no mind. Okay. Now, the image that came to me when I thought of this was this. <laughs> Those who can't know, this is um, Gandalf with a quote about foolishness. And I thought, so I thought about that, and then I thought about how often I am a fool and I look like this. Just pippin' after the fact. Okay. Anyway, so the word here is, in the Hebrew, it is naval. Um, we can see other uses of the word in Deuteronomy 32.6, when Moses talks about the future disobedience of Israel, in Isaiah 32, chapter 5 to 6, about individuals who speak incorrectly about God, and also in Psalm 74.22, about individuals who scoff at God. Um, it is also closely tied to the name of an individual named Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, 25. Uh, long story short there, Nabal is a very rich man and has an opportunity to host David and his troops, and he chooses not to. And his wife um, goes to King David and his troops after they are all about to come and kill Nabal and basically says to David, listen, this man's name means exactly what he is. He is a fool. So please don't go and kill him. So uh, some of your translations may have a note on the word that the fool means more moral in nature than intellectual. And that is true in a, in a way that many times when we use the word fool, we may think of someone who's intellectually stupid, for sake of a better word. Somebody who is just not very um, academically competent. And although that can lead to the conditions of the use of this, um, this word is its more meant to denote someone who's morally foolish, someone who's morally defunct and lacking wisdom in that manner. It's the general sense is that of someone who both lacks moral character and generally is just void of all wisdom. Like Pippin, <laughs> as we saw when he was messing around in a well and knocked a stone down and brought a whole mess of goblins on his friends when he had no business doing so. Okay, so let's move on to the next phrase. The fool, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So uh, note on the translation here that the there is here is not actually in the original manuscripts. How this is meant to read is, in his heart, no God. Translators later have inserted this in with an idea of 
that it's kind of talking about the denial of an existence of God, but that's really not what it's getting at. Is we would see in the in ancient cultures, there was much less intellectual atheism than we see today. Really, if any, that there were you would be hard pressed to find individuals in an ancient culture who denied the existence of any God at all. So to say that, to take the translation to say there is no God really doesn't make much sense um, with the context of this. However, in its heart, no God, we can definitely pull another meaning out of that and we can actually analyze it through some scriptures that we've already gone through. So uh, I want to pause here for a second, too, and say that this is a good example of, I'm going to break down this part of Scripture with other Scripture that we have already read, and being that the topic of this class is biblical literacy and understanding how to read the Bible, this is a practice I would encourage everyone to go about when trying to understand the Scriptures, is to put them in conversation with other Scriptures. The Bible interprets itself, and this is the best way that we can go about it understanding it, as well as discussion with the church. So consider some of the scriptures we've looked at before. Uh, In Psalm 917, it reads, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. Psalm 10.4 reads, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Or, as Jesse pointed out a couple weeks ago, that can also be taken to say, In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Psalm 10.11 says, He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Then we see Psalm 10, 13. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Now, all of these scriptures, what they get at is the same point of what we see, is that the fool is not per se the one who denies the existence of God, but who denies his involvement in the world. Consider that phrase again. In his heart, there, in his heart, there is no God. Or rather, as I said, in his heart, no God. This idea that in his being, in the way he thinks, and he goes about, no God. He's not present in his life at all. So this is, um, you know, kind of recapping that, this is really not describing, per se, like a Bill Nye or a Richard Dawkins as we may think of. This is true for them, but it's not that intellectual atheist who so verbally denies his existence. Because note the in his heart part of this. Especially, again, let's put it in conversation with scripture. When we looked at Psalm 9, 1 before, which said, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. So Psalm 14, in the wicked man's heart, no God, Versus King David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. The broader point here is that the person that David is talking about here is someone that Charles Spurgeon titled the practical atheist. Is the one who, even though they may give verbal assent to the intellectual existence of a God or even the God of the universe... That God is not really there in their heart. And for all of their words and their proclamations and everything they say, practically this individual has no God, which should be um, cause us to reflect, especially I imagine most of the people listening to this are probably not 
intellectual atheist, so to know that this psalm can also include you. Um, I want to look at no God a little bit, just to kind of flesh this out even more in that it says the fool says this. Well, why is it foolish to say no God? Well, there's really two degrees of foolishness. We can see just the absurdity of it on the surface that to have no God in your heart and to deny him is just ridiculous in light of his clear influence throughout the entire world. However, it's also practically and morally ridiculous in that this inevitably leads to bad outcomes. Um, an example of where we would see this is in Jeremiah 2.13, where the prophet is describing the foolishness of the people of Israel when he says, my people have committed two evils. Well, this is Jeremiah is channeling the Lord. This is not <laughs> Jeremiah himself. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So we see in this instance the people of Israel having to make a choice between a fountain of living, eternal water that can never go away and a well that can hold no water. And what do they choose? The latter. It's foolish, right? It makes no sense. Um, a similar example might be that for the fool says in his heart, there is no government. Consider that if I were to walk out today and I decided that there just were no government and I didn't pay my taxes, I didn't get a permit if I ever needed it, I ignored traffic laws, it would certainly not go, on, once again, on its face, it's just absurd. We see the influence of government everywhere, right? In um, different officers that they employ, their laws, their influences everywhere throughout the land. So it's absurd on its face, but ultimately it's also going to be extremely impractical in that it will inevitably end me up in jail. So even if I want to deny the government, I really don't have the grounds to do so. It's foolish. Now, um, I do want to be careful with the metaphor. I'm not saying that um, God is an idea like government in that we, you know, we can't see government, but to a fashion, God has made his presence displayed in the world before. But um, I think the metaphor is helpful in ways. Okay, let's move on. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Then it says, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Now, note the transition here from the singular to the plural, from talking to the individual fool to now the, this is the larger group of wicked fools that David is referring to. So we start off with the word corrupt here. Um, it is also used by God in other places in scripture, specifically to describe when the people of Israel um, created the golden calf when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai receiving instruction from the Lord. Um, the sense is that they've defiled themselves. They've done something morally reprehensible and they are now dirty. Um, this could be taken as the opposite of righteous in many ways, that as opposed to being right and in good standing before Lord, the Lord, the people are wrong. 
Um, also note that both this and the abominable deeds in the second half of it, it should be understood as the natural consequence of the fool's proclamation that there is no God. This is the inevitable outcome. And one reason that should be concerning is considering what exactly abominable deeds are. Um, as another example of this, I would like to, I won't read the whole story, but I just want to share something out of Judges 19. Uh, it is a story that many of you may not be familiar with, probably for good reason. Um, a quick synopsis of the book of Judges is that the book is really an analysis of the slow decline of the society of Israel as they slowly go away from God more and more and more until they have totally become like the fools and there is no God in their heart and they are living on their own. And this is what we see in Judges 19. Just as a quick synopsis that I think should give all of us pause who would like to say that society is perfectly good with no God in their heart. Now, to start off, we see a man who is a Levite, a supposed moral exemplar of society. He takes a concubine, what we might consider a mistress, which is um, not good to begin with. It's permissible in Israel society, but it always goes bad. And then for reasons that will become clear later, his concubine tries to run away from him and goes back to her father. He then goes after her. her the woman's father tries to detain her father for a while with a lot of partying and encourages him to keep staying. It could either be because he's a very hospitable man or he just he doesn't want his daughter to go back with this man. But eventually, he does leave with the, his concubine. They're traveling, trying to find a place to stay and are struggling to do so when eventually they come to a village uh, controlled by the tribe of Benjamin and no one will give this man and his concubine hospitality except someone who is from the Levite's home territory in a frame. Then, in a scene that should cause anyone familiar with the book of Genesis um, to recognize some parallelism, men begin loudly banging on this man's house, demanding that this citizen of this village hands over the Levite so that they can have sex with him. The man says no, he's not going to give it to them, but he offers his daughter to the men. The men refuse, and eventually what ends up is that the man's concubine ends up being thrown out to the men. They mistreat her the, the whole night, and eventually the, man, the Levite finds his concubine the next day. Um, he, she's barely alive. He takes her back to his home, and he ends up cutting her into 12 pieces and distributing her to all the tribes of Israel, which leads to a massive war with Benjamin. It's just a disaster. It's utterly ridiculous but this is the consequence of no God. And it's gruesome and it's visceral, but it's there in the Bible for a reason, I think is a very accurate example and a warning to all those who think that we can go on with no God and think that we're just fine. All right, um, moving on to verse 2. Oh, I did, um, at the end of verse 14, okay, I missed it on here. So it ends with, there is none who does good. So now we see David has made another transition, the group of people that he's referring to. He started off with the singular of the wicked man, then he moved on to the plural group of wicked, and now he has moved on, it seems, to all of humanity. 
the image that seems to be presented here is that David is going through this mental consideration of, oh, this single man is so wicked. Oh gosh, there are so many other like him. And the way I picture it is David just has his, his face in his hands just lamenting the wickedness all about him. And then suddenly he looks up and realizes that the blood is on his hands too. That it is not just these wicked who oppose God. It is a sense of, oh God, we are all wrong. We have all gone astray and none of us really do good. So then moving on to verse two, we see the Lord's response in this part, which ought to be understood as a response to the beginning of the fool's proclamation that he has no God in his heart. Um, Let's read the verse. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. So consider the beginning. The Lord looks down. So even if the fool wants to deny in his heart that there is no God and he's not involved, God will still be God and he will still look and he will still consider. Now, that word understand, uh, some translations will give a footnote to say act wisely. Um, The idea here is the Lord is looking down to see if there are any who get it. Are there any who put God in his proper place and respond appropriately and live righteously and who seek after him? And we will see the answer in the next verse. I expect you already know what it is. Um, So a note on who seek after God. Uh, Spurgeon said um, this about this. He said, alas, even this low degree of good to seek God is not to be found even by him who sees all things. But men love the hideous negation of no God, which is really just a tragedy to consider how much we love the proclamation in our own heart of no God, even though it's the very thing that destroys us. One more note. This is from David Kuzik, a Bible commentator. He said, if man initiates the search for God, then he doesn't seek the true God, the God of the Bible. Instead, he seeks an idol that he makes himself. So, Let's consider what the Lord finds. Verse 3. The Lord finds this. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So the Lord has answered his search. There is no one who seeks him, none who does good, not even one. Um, the word for corrupt here, it should be noted, is actually a different word than um, the corrupt in the first verse. Uh, This one is used less frequently in Scripture, and the King James translated it this way, and I think it's a more accurate way, is to say that um, it could be read, as they have all turned aside, together they have become filthy. In the eyes of their maker, they have become totally tainted and... Stained, they're, they're gross, is what sin and wickedness has done to us, all of us. 
So the verse speaks for itself. Go on to verse four. So again, take note. Um, we'll read the verse. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? So again, be careful to note, David has jumped to another group. We, are, we have now gone back from David speaking to all of humanity to the plural wicked as we see the division between evildoers and my people, the righteous. So, to begin, um, consider this first part. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat at my people as they eat bread? The idea from David here seems to be that the wicked must just be ignorant. Because if they understood God and his commands, why would they act in the way they do? And this is an idea that has precedence throughout scripture. Um, we see in the book of Hosea, in chapter 4, verse 6, when the prophet is rebuking the priests who are meant to be teaching the people of God, he says this, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will also ignore your children. Um, so I think this should maybe give us a little bit of compassion for the wicked in a sense, but not too much. But just to realize that really the root of foolishness and corruption is ignorance in one way of God's word. I mean, it is very possible to know the word and still deny it. But as we see from David here, in many instances, um, it's knowledge, a lack of knowledge that destroys. So then, who eat up my people as they eat bread. Um, it's a little bit of a strange phrase. Um, the idea, I think, can maybe be communicated in this form. Um, it's kind of similar to this, or maybe to something like this. Um, <laughs> just a couple of gifts. Um, the, the idea is it's bread as just, um, you know, in a society without plates often, that bread would often be how meals were served. The idea is that the bread is eaten without thought. It was like that first gift, the man just surrounded in bread, just pawing it into his mouth, that the, the wicked just eat up the people of God just carelessly and enjoyably without second thought. And of course, they do not call upon the Lord because he isn't, has no place in their heart. But then look at the end of the psalm. So we see a transition here. I'll read verse five and six here. So there they are in great terror for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Now, one thing to note here, and I was going to mention this at the beginning too, is that Psalm 53, interestingly, is almost the same exact psalm as Psalm 14. There's a couple different phrases, and it's set to a different lyrical tune. And this is one place where Psalm 53 adds to the first half of this verse. He says, um, the psalmist says, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. And the idea is that the wicked are not secure that even when there is no real danger because of their state, they are always on the lookout for something and always being frightened, even when there's not a real cause for terror. As a contrast, the wicked are in great terror, but God is with 
the generation of the right, righteous, where the wicked are insecure because of their life without a foundation, even though God's people may be poor and oppressed, God is with them. Um, a note on the end of this one says, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Uh, refuge is an interesting word here. Um, it may be pronounced makseh, probably butchering it. That's the word on the screen. Um, another place where this is used that I think adds a little bit of context in Psalm 104.18, it says, The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge, a moxa, for the rock badgers. I thought this was interesting, and this presents uh, the refuge as a physical thing for the rock badgers and the animals, about a place where they can go. But how the word is being used here and how it's often used throughout the scripture, which I think adds a lot to it, is that God may really oftentimes is not a physical place we hide in, but even without that, he's our refuge wherever we are, that he brings it to us, and we are always able to hide in him wherever we're at. All right, so we are almost there. Verse 7. It's, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. So again, we will go through this sentence by sentence. Start off with the first part, that salvation for Israel may come out of Zion. Um, let's break down some terms here. That salvation for Israel. Who is Israel again? Israel is God's people, the nation of Israel, all those that are contained. Now, salvation for Israel come out of Zion. Now, specifically, Mount Zion is the easternmost hill of Jerusalem, one of the actual hills that the city is built on. But how it's used here and how it's often used in Scripture is kind of as a plug-in word for really all of Jerusalem, kind of in the same way that often a nation's capital will be used to describe the conduct of their leaders, saying Washington says this, or this comes from London, or yada yada as a plug-in word to say the leaders of this nation say so. Zion is used to describe Jerusalem in that way, with the idea is that God's presence is in Zion, in his city, in a special way, and that salvation and help for his people is going to come from his presence. And David is praying that the presence of God would go out and help his people. Um. Let's, um, so now let's go through the second half. Of, we'll go back there. The second half, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, is how the ESV reads, but really it's not exactly an accurate translation. That word fortunes does really never means fortunes. It almost always means captives. So the, the New King James translate this, when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people which is still a little bit confusing. Um, I think the translation that I found that really gets the heart of this the best is it's some version of the New American Standard Bible. I found this on Step Bible. When I looked at the actual NASB, it said it different. So wherever this comes from, this is a good translation. It says, when the Lord restores his captive people, with the idea being that, as has been throughout this psalm, David is not talking about an external threat that the people of Israel are facing, but it's really oppression from their own people, from those 
who are wicked exploiting the righteous. And what David is praying is he's looking forward to when the Lord restores his people out of their captivity. And I think that the original audience for this, what this image would have evoked that we might lose out of our cultural distance, is this can't help but call back to the Exodus. Um, It's the same theme as God's redemption, as we see in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, where this principle is really first applied, when the Lord says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This is part of the reoccurring story of God for his people, that from the start, he brought them out of captivity, and unfortunately, we keep trying to put our, our chains back on, as inevitably happens with the disease that we have. But for forever, even when his people are unfaithful and put their chains back on, God is always in the business of taking them back off. As we would see um, a beautiful example of this, uh, I won't, once again, I won't read the whole thing, but if you look at Genesis 15, when the Lord first makes a covenant with Abraham, and he does something very unconventional, and as they're doing this ceremony, when Abraham is meant to basically pledge that he will obey the Lord or die, the Lord kind of flips it on his head and says that he will uphold his end of the covenant, no matter how faithful or unfaithful Abraham and his descendants are. So this is part of why David can say so confidently, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Um, the, The would really is really more that David is confident that it will come, and the Lord will restore the fortunes of his people, because that's who he is, and it's what he always did and will do. And just closing here, I want to give just two examples of where we see this applied. This is clearly messianic in some ways, and that salvation for Israel did, in fact, come out of Zion with the, with the birth, death, um, resurrection of Jesus Christ, when the one who would totally redeem Israel and throw off their chains came. And we also do see examples throughout the scripture of this occurring on a practical level beforehand. Um, one story that I really love, again, I won't go through all of it, but I'll encourage someone to check it out in 2 Kings 22 to 23:30, or you can find the same story in 2 Chronicles 34 to 36, when King Josiah accidentally found the Bible while one of his priests was cleaning the temple and went on a rampage of purging Israel of its idols and their wickedness. He went so far as to go into the northern kingdom, which had already been destroyed, and destroy their altars and started killing idolatrous priests and held a massive Passover ceremony. Um, And I think in light of that, what we can really pull from this psalm is one, to recognize the way that we all are practical atheists in many ways, but to recognize that the salvation for Israel and the imputation of God into the hearts of men, of course, firstly comes from God and his initiative, but it also, as it says here, it comes out of Zion. It's meant to come out of the temple of the living God, which now is no longer located in Jerusalem. It is located in our hearts when all the people of God and salvation is 
available for all who will call upon the Lord. And just as King Josiah went to clean the temple and make his people holy, so we are called to be that manifestation of the salvation for Israel and all God's people as we seek to exercise practical atheism for salvation to come out of Zion. So that is Psalm 14. There was a lot there, so I am going to briefly pause if there are any questions on this psalm before I move on. Ah, uh, yes, I was actually, I meant to touch on that. Okay. Yeah, this is something we see all throughout scripture that it says, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. This has its root in the namesake of Israel. Um, one of the, that we call them the patriarchs, some of the men who started, or Abraham's descendants was a man named Jacob. And he had an interaction with God where he wrestled with him and he changed his name to Israel. And eventually that became to be known the the name of the nation of Israel. So from then on, we see throughout the Psalms and throughout scripture, they oftentimes use Israel and Jacob interchangeably to describe the nation, much in the same way we might describe the America and the United States as being the same entity. So it has its root in the story of Genesis and the story of Jacob, which you can read about. But that's why, um, that's, that's important, because we actually see this a lot throughout Scripture. Where it, and um, we'll also see sometimes it talks about a frame, which is a stand-in for the northern kingdom. So those terms can be confusing if you don't fully understand them. But it's basically, it's talking about the same thing. Let Israel slash Jacob rejoice, Israel slash Jacob be glad. It's another way of repeating the same point. Yes? Almost, yeah, there are a couple small changes in terms there. Uh, the idea here is that the Psalms were written at various points throughout time, and what most likely happened here is it's unclear whether 14 or 53 were written first, but somebody, somebody in Israel had possession of the Psalm, and they decided to set it to a different tune and change it a little bit, and it also ended up in the collection of the Psalms, which were they weren't all written at the same time, but eventually someone went through the work to compile them. So you think it was definitely like someone saw one of them and redid it, if you will, to the other? Like, is there any possibility that it could have been two completely different people who never heard of each other's, or the, you know what I mean? The first song to imitate and switch a little bit. It's possible, but very unlikely. It's in the way that Israel was set up in the Psalms, it's the, the most likely answer is that somebody saw the first one and decided they wanted to try to kind of do a remix of sorts, really. Um, set it to a different tune and change it a little bit. Good question. Fair, added, it might also be that they decided to do this in Yeah. Right. 
So that is Psalm 14. And now we are, I know we are running out of time a little bit here, so we are going to go through. Psalm 15 is only five verses, but there is a lot to it too. So we will see how much we can get through here. So, Psalm 15. On some intro and context, there is a little bit more history behind this one. Again, it's not clear from the psalm itself when it was written. There's nothing in the intro, but based on what David's going to talk about, it's probable that it's a time when Jerusalem has just been freshly conquered by David, and David is now bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which is really like the object where God's presence dwelled, kind of like his throne in a manner of speech. He's bringing it into Jerusalem, and that act is forcing him to ask some questions about how to approach God, being his presence is now coming into his city. So we'll go right into verse one. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, many translations will take that word tent and translate it as tabernacle, which is probably... Um, I think tent is the more literal way to put it, but it definitely means the tabernacle being the place that we see extremely specific instructions for the creation of in the book of Exodus. Um, it was the original meeting place between God and man. Now, holy hill, however, is most certainly, most probably meaning Jerusalem, the freshly conquered city of David, where it now seems that God's presence is going to dwell in a fresh and new way. Uh, note the difference here between the verbs that are used. He says first, who shall sojourn in a kind of temporary way in the tent. And he transitions to who shall dwell on your holy hill. Um, this, is a, this is a change for the nation of Israel. That with the conquest of Jerusalem and the entrance of the ark, um, eventually the temple will come. God's presence is becoming closer to his people and that, that dwell kind of presents the idea that God has a more permanent dwelling place now. And um, this verse really is a theme of the whole psalm about David asking the question of what type of person dwells in your city, who is allowed to be with you, which I think is a really important question for us to ask in our day and age when oftentimes we treat God so flippantly when if you even just take a quick read through the book of Leviticus, you will see um, very specific instructions that God gives for coming into his presence and that it is not meant to be an easy thing when um, a defiled people, as we saw in Psalm 14, come face to face with a holy God. So that's the theme of the psalm. So on that note, how we, you can read this psalm and take it as a list of requirements that somebody must have to enter into the presence of God. But it's not exactly how it's meant to be. The only way that's meant to be true is in the messianic portion that one can really take this. And that in one way, the requirements that are going to be listed here, they are representative that someone needs to be totally morally upright to fully dwell in the presence of God, which is something that Christ fulfilled, and because of his perfect moral character, we now can dwell with God. But aside from that, and I think how David would have originally meant this, it's really a guideline for the type of person that God's people are. Really, it's kind of like a fruit of the spirits type of thing. So let's hop into that. So again, 
who shall sojourn your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? It starts off with this in verse 2. It says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Um, I think that's relatively self-explanatory. It's basically the same as saying someone who's righteous is the model worshiper of God, is the one who is not corrupt, but has a righteous, good, honorable character. Now, speaks truth in his heart is it's a little bit of a confusing term on the surface. Um, one scripture that can give some insight into this is when Christ said in Matthew 12, 34, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, Maybe another way to kind of get that across is that I think what it's saying here is that the true saint is genuine. They're, they're not two-faced. Um, so not only do they say what is really in their heart, also as Christ said, what comes out of their heart is right. So the true saint is both authentic, but not authentic to evil within his heart. So there is truth in the saint's heart, and he speaks what is there. Verse 3, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Now, the word slander there is um, interesting. It's this word, it doesn't really mean what you would think it is. It's, the Hebrew is regal, which almost every other place in Scripture means to spy. It's what's used about the spies who are going into the promised land to spy out, and um, the spies who are going into Jericho. And I think... Maybe what gives some insight into why the word's translated here. In the King James Version, it translates that word for slander as backbite. With the idea being here that just as a spy kind of acts covertly, that the one who slanders is one who talks behind the back of somebody else. That they're, they're a backbiter in a way. That they're not the type of person who will speak the truth in their heart to somebody's face but they are always about doing it in the shadows. That's that. So, and does no evil to his neighbor, once again, I think um, is relatively self-explanatory. I want to look at that. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, This could seem a little bit shallow on the surface of, oh, of course a righteous person would treat his friends correctly. Hasn't Christ called us to even treat our enemies well? Like, that's not hard. But um, I think it's something important to remember that the idea here is that the righteous saint is meant to be loyal to their friends and treat them rightly and just be a good brother, which... And oftentimes it's something that we really lack, and I think we would do to remember. Okay, so moving on. Um, in verse 4, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord? Now this, a vile person is despised, should really be a callback to Psalm 1 in this general theme about the division between the wicked and the righteous, and that not only does a righteous person plan himself, like Psalm 1 says, um, in God's word, but he also separates himself from the wicked. That if you love God's people, you must oppose his enemies too. If you love honesty and fairness, you need to oppose 
thievery and justice, that to love must also have its equal opposite. But I think what can be confusing here is that when it says, whose eyes a vile person is despised, I think this could get misappropriated in that I don't think this is really calling in the way that we often use a despise and like this fierce hatred of the person itself. I, I'm not saying, um, it's not really this principle though either of love the person, what, hate the sin, love the sinner, right? I, I think it's the person of God is really meant to, in a way to, to hate the wicked while at the same time loving them about recognizing that who they are in their being and their conduct really is evil while being able to actually still care about that person. It's, it's kind of a confusing concept, but I think um, if you get it, you get it. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll just add one more note that I think adds a little bit. And that, that word despise there, it was also used in 1 Samuel 15, 9, when it talks about Saul and his men despising the part of the plunder in a battle they had that was really worthless. The idea being here that the righteous person, they don't hold wickedness and that person in high value compared to righteousness. Which we see the flip side of that is this person, um, they despise the vile, but they honor those who fear the Lord, which again is something that it just seem obvious on the surface, but I think it's something we could really do with, especially in the culture we live in, where we tend to really honor no one, especially in the church. I mean, we just see authority figures torn down time after time, and oftentimes we clap on their way down. And you know, I admit, do admit, and many times what these people do is wicked, but man, I mean, we are a self-loving culture, and there is something to say about the way we differentiate ourselves by honoring and caring for those in authority and or even just our common brothers and sisters when so often we're just, our culture is very quick to point out the faults of others and show honor to no one. And in, I mean, that is especially valuable too. And, you know, we can even see in a place like this that honor from somebody who recognizes what you're about as a Christian really means something from those who get it. Same reason why a husband needs the respect of his wife. Same principle. Okay. So it says at the end of verse 4, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Again, it's kind of not immediately clear on the surface. Um, the idea is, well, we can look at that verse change and the word change at the end there. The only other places that's used previously is um, in Leviticus 27.10 and 27.33. In the first part of Leviticus, it's talking about how whatever sacrifice someone has vowed to give, they should do that sacrifice and not change it. And in the other Leviticus verse, it's talking about a tithe that is meant to be given and about how the, the offerer should not substitute what really should be given for something else. With the idea being here that someone who swears to his own hurt both keeps his word when he makes it, but also the vows he make are right. That you know, in those parallels to Leviticus, that the things they vow, they hold to, but the things they vow are also what's supposed to be vowed. 
Okay, we are going to finish up here. Uh, verse 5, we're at the end. Um, I just want to, so it says, it do, he does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now, this verse has really been misappropriated throughout the history of the church in this idea that Christians cannot um, charge interest to others. It was the reason why the Jews actually have gotten so involved in the financial sector in many ways is that for many times, and when the Roman Catholic Church was in control, Christians were not allowed to be bankers because the idea was that it was sinful to charge interest, um, which is totally not really what this is saying, although it's kind of what it looks like on the surface. Uh, when we see this principle, or even this word being used throughout Scripture, it's always in the context of the poor being exploited and interest being charged on fellow Israelites who really are just in terrible circumstances. Um, so the idea is really not about interest in and of itself, but about one using their financial strength to oppress others. Okay, and then at the end, he who does these things shall never be moved. Um, this is the same principle that Christ spoke about in Matthew 7, 24, which said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. It's also similar to the exhortation that Paul gave the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He said, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is why, at least part why we follow God in that, and look at the contrast in what we just read in Psalm 14, 5. It said, the wicked are in great terror when there is no terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. That a life of obedience to Christ and his commands is not only what we're supposed to do, it's what actually leads to a profitable fruitful life where we're not suddenly being shaken up from every trial that comes in life because we're using our bodies and our lives and our relationships as we were meant to, as we were created to. It, obedience really is a blessing. And a life of wickedness and sin, it's not fun. It's really just foolish. I've been seeing this entire time. So, indeed, he who does these things and follows Christ shall never be moved. Okay, any questions on, I know we're at the end of our times, any questions on this song? No. All righty then. Well, this has been Biblical Literacy 101. Thank you for listening, for those who are here tonight. Um, have a great night. And let me just close this in prayer, too, if that be appropriate. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to teach tonight for working through me, Lord, and for the gift of your word, Father. I pray you'd bless Justin and Jade as they go out tonight and everyone who may be listening tonight, Lord. May your name be glorified and thank you for this opportunity, Father. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's class. If you are between the ages of 18 to 40 and you're interested in joining us in person, Class is held every Friday night beginning at 6.30 p.m. at Columbus Baptist Church. You can find us online at cbcnj.com. That's cbcnj.com. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.